0: This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is an award-winning humor writer whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, McSweeney's, BuzzFeed, and The Huffington Post. She is the author of the hilarious and relatable memoir, I'm Wearing Tunics Now, and the recently released middle grade book, Ginger Mancino, Kid Comedian. She blogs, she tweets, she shares wit and wisdom in all she writes. Coming up, Is my dialogue with fellow sarcastic scribe, Wendy Aarons. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity.
1: Hi, thank you for having me here today. Yay.
0: Yay. It's fun to have a fellow Austinite, but also I love... Humor writers, as much as I like stand-up comics, it's a different way of attacking everything. You aren't a stand-up comic, but you have been writing humor all your life. So tell me how important humor is as a life skill.
1: It's a huge life skill. And I actually came into humor writing a little bit late. I was in advertising, which is a great place if you are funny, you can do well with that. So I did that a little bit. And then I became a reluctant stay-at-home mom. And started writing satire to kind of help me make sense of the world. I don't go to therapy. It's kind of how I work things out like many (laughs) comedians do. And the first thing I wrote was an angry letter to Procter & Gamble about the slogan on Always MaxiPads that said, Have a happy period.
0: And Mm. that went
1: viral before Twitter and Facebook existed. Like people were printing it out and mailing it to each other. But that kind of told me that, hey, you know, I have a funny voice. I can make a strong point. You know, the old humor is a rubber sword. You can make your point without drawing blood, which I love. So I couldn't say these things in my day-to-day life or I didn't want to because I was trying to just fit in and be a good mom at school. But when I was writing, I could be more sarcastic and, you know, have a really much stronger point of view And the Always MaxiPad letter led to me creating a blog and that led to more satiric writing and eventually to the book I just had come out. Uh, So it's been good. And it's, like I said, it's been a good way to get my voice to be stronger. So at some point, my strong writing voice and my in-person voice started to merge a little bit more and it made me more brave to say things out loud.
0: That's interesting. And the advertising aspect of it probably felt Uh really empowered to say, I know what I'm talking about. Not just being funny about it, but I can say the marketing here's not great. Exactly. I had a, a joke on that topic because I I used to think that uh, the cereal nut and honey, you know, they would always say at the end, what's eating there? Nut and honey, like that was the most clever way to get their yeah, thing in. Yeah. And I said, that wouldn't work in a series of other things if they put the product in. Honey is it that time of the Always, You know, if they said it, it's like, (laughs) that would be terrible advertising, right? It's really funny though. (laughs) Well, and it's weird because you have to check yourself. If you're a man Mm -hmm. telling a joke about a female product or, I mean, this isn't just about everyday life. It's about how you express yourself and what do you expect to come back? So you have developed a very, very strong voice on Twitter with a big following. You don't hold back. Mm -hmm. And I think you probably, you just talked about, Building your bravery, but now it feels like on a medium like Twitter, you're somewhat bulletproof in making the statement, but they can shoot back. So, do you get a lot of feedback? I have
1: recently received more because of the changes at Twitter. I think that a lot of the trolls have been let back in through the gates. So, I do get that, you know, and I've had a couple of mean attacks, but. You know, you take it for what it's worth. And I think that I know that's the price of playing the game. I certainly fire back at other people. And so if they do it to me, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I've I've been doing it long enough that, I mean, it's it's worse if your neighbor comes up and says, you didn't take your trash cans and you're stupid, then I would probably start to cry almost. (laughs) But if somebody on Twitter calls me a horrible name, I don't really care.
0: I read that among your best writing, uh, it's notes left on cars parked by assholes. Yeah. So do you indeed do that?
1: I have done that. I have done that. Well, you know, in in Austin's insane.
0: Yeah. Tell me one of your better comments in that regard.
1: Usually it's just one word. It's just asshole. Or uh, sometimes I've done like, I guess your truck is more important than the rest of ours. Congratulations. I don't spend a lot of time crafting it because I'm trying to write it and leave it and run away before somebody comes (laughs) out and catches me in the act. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's They're not like that a, strong. A, it's ding dong ditch them approach to writing.
1: Pretty much, yeah. pretty much.
0: Well, I guess it's funny to me because y- it it boils your blood enough that you just even leaving a note with one word it mm-hmm. p- must be a release for you.
1: For sure, and you know that you know, to me, and I'm sure to you too, you realize that the, one of the great features of comedy and humor is how it breaks tension. So you get that little dopamine release. And I think that I get that with my tweets sometimes where I can just be sitting here reading the news and feeling powerless and you know having all this anger and anxiety and sometimes just firing off a funny missive about it, it makes me feel temporarily better. I know I'm not fixing anything, but if it if it can make me feel better for a second, that's something, I guess.
0: Well, doesn't it also come back sometimes tenfold, which is that you get... Lots of people who like it or yeah. share it, and you go, "I knew it. I knew I wasn't the only one."
1: Yeah, or they'll say, "Thank you for saying things that I couldn't say or I didn't know how to say," which feels good. So you know, I, I expect I'll be getting the Nobel Peace Prize at some point. Of course, the <laughs> naturally, I don't I'm just I'm just planning on it.
0: Well, get good. So, would you mind accepting that award now?
1: No, I would. I I need to probably take off my hat and my sweatshirt, but I'm ready to go to Oslo.
0: Okay. So what would you say? What, what would you say to them?
1: Actually accept it. I would say thank you for recognizing that humor and comedy are great ways to make the world a better place. They relieve both relieve tension. And if you can make somebody laugh, I think they're in your the palm of your hand forever and ever. And uh, yeah, I just interviewed a playwright who's doing a play in town, who's uh, our Eric Thomas, who's incredibly funny. And he said, laughter is the future.
0: What's the name of his play?
1: It's called Nightbird. It's going to be at Austin Playhouse. And he's just, I love his writing. He's really, really, really funny, but he also uses it to shed a light on things in society that are you know, the issues in society and, uh, again, uses it to break tension and has a great social commentary. So I highly recommend Nightbird at Austin Playhouse starting March
0: 3rd. Okay, great. I will go see it myself because I live in town. Mm-hmm. Humor makes things accessible. People don't listen in today's political diatribe, in, in lots of other places where everything seems to be so hard and fast, black and white that there's no nuance. There's no way to get a person to have a dialogue or even a civil Mm -hmm. discourse because everyone's rigid. Everybody's inside their suit of armor Mm -hmm. and too busy shaming and blaming everyone around them.
1: I agree. I think the humor lets their, their defenses down somewhat because when you're laughing, you can't be angry. Well, people try to, but... And I told this story at my book, People, event that you were at, so let me repeat it, but... As I said before, I used humor to help me make sense of the world and to kind of address these awful things going on. And when the Me Too movement was really in full swing, I wanted to say something about it. But I knew that my skill set is not writing op-eds, not writing think pieces. I just don't do that very well. So what I did instead was write a satiric piece for McSweeney's called Things to Do at Work besides show your penis to coworkers, workers
0: <laughs> oh,
1: Which is a funny way to to get my the same point across. And that wound up being the most shared piece on their site that year. Wow. Because people shared it and it made them think. And you know, again, it was I'm saying the same thing as these op eds, kind of. Yeah. But I'm couching it in a laugh first. And yeah. then, you know, then the the broccoli think stuff comes in
0: afterwards. Sure. I can maybe help you. From with a campaign for men, look up zip up. That yeah. way, they can walk <laughs> around the office with without making a mistake. You know? I
1: like it. I like yeah. it.
0: <laughs> well, I feel like the world's a darker and darker place, and I don't know if it's just that we know so much and everybody knows so everything so fast. Yeah. But it does seem like there's a lot more things to be fearful of, I guess, and and much more to that impacts you personally. It used to be that. Oh, that was happening over there or that was happening in Washington. Now it feels like it's all happening in our yard. And also we look at our neighbor, as you mentioned earlier, and you look at your neighbor's political yard sign. You're looking at like everything is based on opinions. And it's really hard to think about sitting down and breaking bread with people in the same way because I think everything's a hot button. And so it doesn't really matter if it's, mm-hmm. I like cucumbers and I don't. That seems to be like, You're on a different team. And I don't know what we do about that. I don't know how we reel that in anymore because everybody is predisposed to be upset.
1: I mean, the horse is out of the gate. And uh, I think you and I are kind of in the same age group. So I, I have been grappling with this. Like, is this just a natural part of getting older where you do get a little bit more fearful and you do know so much more about what's going on in the world and you understand it? Or is the world just gone off the rails. I think it's a bit of both. And Austin has changed rapidly in the last 10 years where there are all these new people here. You don't have the connections that you used to for the most part. And I don't know, it's it's kind of an icky feeling. So I think you just need to cling on to who your friends are, keep yourself open to meeting new friends, and just find your community and connection where you can, which is easier said than done. But you know all we can do is
0: keep trying. Yeah, I think the pandemic threw a pretty big cool into things because socializing yeah. changed in terms of what could we do, where could we go. You suddenly became habitually different, binge watching at home, trying to figure out how to bide mm-hmm. the time. And then mask wearing took the smiles away and you can't wink with a mask on at the store, then you're a creeper. You know, like there's so many <laughs> there's so many things that sort of just sort of picked away, I think at the way you make friends. And I mean, this podcast is a product of that absence. I thought, oh, I want to have some good grown-up conversations that range from humor to depth to the arts. And where, how would I do that? And because everybody else wasn't working at the same time, it facilitated mm-hmm. the notion that people were eager to talk about something hopeful. And again, while I did go to your book signing, and I will, full disclosure, let people know, I was one of three men at that Event with a, a sea of women that were all holding your book ready to be signed. The book is called "I Wear Tunics Now." The other guy I noticed was your husband, Chris. So I'm not—I uh, yeah. can't speak to who the third guy was, but he was <laughs> wearing a tunic. He was,
1: and we love it. Yeah,
0: him. let me talk about that book too because I want to be sure people know about it. It is a memoir, but it feels like a series of essays that you wrote along the way because every time you changed an outfit or you did something different. You talked about catching yourself transitioning into doing that now. And you're a snappy, snarky, funny writer, but you also have a great deal of authenticity and reality. And I think the humor comes from the fact that you're just telling the truth with no filter.
1: Well, thank you for all that. And I do have a filter. I don't talk about uh, my husband and my kids' personal lives, because that's theirs to tell, and I, I, it seems wrong. I don't say that I hide behind humor, but obviously I lead with humor, so I don't get into the deep and twisty dark stuff. Which, again, I wouldn't do. It's not my story to tell. I don't. E- I don't personally have a lot of dark, twisty stuff that's in there. So the stuff that came out was even felt like I was personally sharing more than normal. Okay. Each chapter is I'm wearing blank now because I looked from my looked at my life from ages 30 to 50 and realized that my life, like many women's lives, can be determined by what you were wearing or doing at that time. I'm wearing maternity pants now, uh-huh. I'm wearing twin set sweaters now. And then I get a little bit less concrete with I'm wearing invisibility now, I'm wearing fury now, just kind of the transition. Um, and I think the last chapter is called I'm Wearing Badass Now. So it's kind of just growing up and getting more mature and getting tougher. But once I figured out that structure for the book, it was much easier to figure out, okay, this, these are the the touchstones that I want to hit when I'm writing this humor. And then I mixed in a lot of my satiric pieces that have been in um, New Yorker's Daily Shouts and mixed Sweeney's that are sort of the companion pieces to the essays.
0: Which is fantastic. First of all, you mentioned something that— anybody that's a writer that listening can really learn from, which is almost like in a song, finding the hook. So finding the structure for yourself doesn't mean it writes itself, but it certainly puts the right kind of boundaries on where you then know what belongs in the book, what doesn't, or it gives you a lens to look at an experience or an idea or a moment in time and write a very focused piece that allows it to be a, building block within the bigger structure it's really a little yeah. bit like poetry what is the theme here what is the universal point that i'm trying to make so everything i think of doesn't belong in this book unless it can come in down through this funnel
1: exactly what's your through line going to be that was my big thing because i don't this is the longest thing i've ever written so yeah what's the themes start to come out the more you get into it and i'm like okay i I'm talking about getting my voice louder. So I have to start talking about how it wasn't loud and then the progression of it to the end. So, yeah, that's a big thing. And so I would highly recommend anyone working on a longer form project like this to, to get that structure. And maybe you don't ultimately use it when you uh, produce it, but just to have it as your architecture of the project is a
0: big help. Yeah, I like that term, the architecture, because when you talk about a through line, I think of a downhill skier. and. The point is they know that they have to go around the gate this way and around the gate that way. And if they want to do it faster or beat their time, ultimately in the end, there's something they're focused on that is getting them to the finish line. When people say, oh, I could write about anything and there's no gates, then it's just everywhere. Like this is what the problem with some movies and novels and other things are is that Mm -hmm. people meander all over the place and it's harder and harder to have a long form piece make it to the marketplace. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if you can keep people interested and not taking a dive on page 20 or something, it's a test.
1: No, I agree. And I think think it tends to be self-indulgent when people just veer off in any direction. And I've always thought with my writing that anybody reading my writing, I'm so lucky that they're even starting. I don't want to lose them and that's why i tend to kind of write short and punchy because i'm like just stay i want to entertain you and i don't want to bore you and so that's kind of always in the back of my mind which tends to keep my words uh, there's an economy of words and the pacing is quicker but you know it's you, you are you're a on stage performer so you get that where you you know, you're literally, you can see people walking. Yeah, out, yeah. You, so know you know when you're, you in. know when you're sticking yeah. it up.
0: I know. But I do see yeah. that in your writing. And I don't think it's an insecurity, but I do think it's a product of people pleasing is that, oh, mm-hmm. are there a couple of good jokes on this page? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are decorations, though, on a structure. <clears throat> so if yes. they stay yeah, on sure. topic, I've always in speech writings, I've always said to people, you don't need an opener that's a joke and then go tell your speech. You need a sugar pill that makes them retain the message. You need it to be on the topic of what you're trying to make a point of. And in your middle school book, which I've been reading, Ginger Mancino, Kid Comedian, I think you kind of nail a very interesting thing about, one, about girls' voices, about finding a confidence and being able to speak their mind. But also, you're taking, she's a professional comedian before she's 12 years old and then in the opening i don't i'm not spoiling the book to say that she's loses her cuteness and so her manager agent drop her as she's turning middle school age and now she's gone from this high of being a professional comedian to having to go through the slings and arrows of middle school where it's awkward and she's trying to make friends and all of that sort of thing and in a way that's every stand-up comedian's story at any age which is when they lose their platform or they don't have any place to express themselves, you know, then they're at a dog park telling jokes.
1: (laughs) That's great. I like that analogy a lot. And, and you know, her starting middle school, completely unsure of herself because she's never been in school like that before. It was really a metaphor, and it was to relate to any kid that age, 11, 12, starting a new school, you know, going through puberty, feeling unsure about themselves. I wrote her to represent like any kid feeling unsure of themselves and trying to find their friends and not sure what their voice is going to be and, and staying true to what they want their voice to be rather than what they think people want to hear from them.
0: Yeah. I think you did a great job. And I'm curious, I think I overheard you say once that you took it to publishers and they wanted to turn it into a boy. And so will you speak to that and why, you know, you stood your ground on it and Also, the importance of, while any kid can read this book and enjoy it thoroughly, why it's so important for helping guide girls into finding a way to have confidence and and to speak their mind.
1: Yeah, and I I have to preface this. I've never done stand-up. I think I'm too scared to do it, but also I have such respect for stand-ups that I don't want to get up there and just dirty the stage. So. I've never done it but I like I said I love stand-ups I love women comedians so much and so when I was asked if I if I had interest in writing a middle grade book I said yes and I wanted it to be about a funny girl I wanted it to, wanted it to be the book I would have loved to read back when I was that age so I, I wrote it and my agent shopped it around to editors in New York and the feedback we got was we really like Wendy we think this is a funny story but we find a funny 12 year old girl too annoying. <laughs> Uh, So it was suggested that if I made it a boy character, it would probably sell. I think my agent at the time said, um, well, the wimpy kid is a complete dickhead. So, (laughs) you know, but that doesn't matter. So, you know, of course, I'm like, no, there's no way that completely defies the purpose of why I even wrote this book. So I stuck it in the proverbial drawer for a couple of years. And then a small independent publisher in Denver approached me. Uh, and they offered to publish it, and it's been great. Uh, it's it's really found its audience. In the book, Ginger gets mysterious texts from her female comedian heroes like Tina Fey and Sarah Silverman and Mindy Kaling that kind of give her a piece of advice, and these are real things that these women have said that I found on the internet, so of course they have to be true, <laughs> uh, but they kind of guide her through life as her mentors and it's, it's really found an audience with both boys and girls. And I've been really lucky that it's led to visiting schools and talking to kids about humor. And, you know, I, I kind of favor talking to the girls about humor more because they don't get that message as much. They're not encouraged to be the class clowns. They don't get the laughs as much. They're more worried about, at a certain age, they start to become more worried about what they look like than if they're funny or if they're calling attention to themselves in any way. So I spoke at the Ann Richards school for girls in Austin, which was great. And then at the end of each talk, I let the kids come up and tell a joke into the live microphone, which is my version of a high wire act because it's kind of terrifying. I don't know what's gonna come out of their mouths and you can see the teachers like kind of on the edge of their seats. And we've had some really good jokes and, you know, a few questionable ones. But you can just see how puffed up they get by, they're never encouraged at school, to, like, get up and tell a joke. It's a, a different thing for them. So that's been probably the best part about having this book out.
0: Well, it's interesting what that can do, getting a response to a joke publicly. like right? It's mm-hmm. one thing to whisper under your breath and get the approval of your friends. And that is also a really empowering thing because once people start to sort of laugh or giggle at you even if the rest of the forum don't hear you you have a tendency to do it more and it builds mm-hmm. a self-confidence and it kind of gives a an approval you know it does help in all parts of life i think w- because it's a different kind of approval it's the you know you get certain kind of approval when you're smart like if you say a smart thing and people go "Oh, let's follow that person but humor is a is i would say is to me, the longest of all the skill tracks you can have, you can't age out of humor. You can age out of being strong. You can age out of being good-looking. All of those kinds of things where people approve of you because you're a cheerleader or you're a quarterback. When you're not playing the sport or when you're not modeling, your own self-esteem can drop because you feel like you're not a value as much. And I mean, I'm saying this not to put those things down. I'm saying... It's a little like music as a skill set. You can play music until you die. You can sit at the Mm -hmm. piano or pick up an instrument and you can enjoy it for fun, you can do it for others, but certain things, if you're ice dancing pair, there's a point you can't pick the other person up and that's the end of the line for that skill set. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess that's why humor is so important in my friendships and relationships is that we're building all these chapters that stack on top of each other. So you can have a 30 year callback and the person will laugh just as hard. You know what I mean? Like you can you can have no, some great. horrible thing happen to you in the presence of someone else and they can say, I remember when you shat your pants on that bridge. You can just say, Remember when you ate that whole bag of lace potato chips and then you know what happened.
1: <laughs> I think that's great. And I think you never hear that funny people peak in high school. No. We're not singing glory days about
0: High school. No, in fact, most of them are just beginning at that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's great. And and the shared humor, that you will remember, like you said, you remember what you laughed at with your friends more than what you cried about, I think.
0: One of my very first jokes I wrote <laughs> was that my Mr. Potato Head got run over by a lawnmower, and so I called him Mr. Hashbrowns.
1: Oh, that's they good. scarred
0: up on the side. It was so clear to me that it was an actual joke. People laughed at it, but I thought, oh, that actually sounds like a joke. When you were finding your voice, because you probably always observed things in a funny way, but when did you know you were humorous? Like, what were the, what were the signs that you were funny?
1: You kind of nailed it, I was an observer, I was more of a quiet kid, the one whispering something funny and then my friend would say it out loud and get the jo- get the laugh and I didn't. But I would write more subversive things. The first time I kind of realized that I was onto something was when in eighth grade science class, I wrote like a crude drawing of my science teacher with like, win a date with Mr. Hansen and then it said, come on baby, like my Bunsen burner and some <laughs> other stuff. And it got confiscated by him and I got detention. So I was, you know, I was a good girl. So I was devastated. But then I found out later that it was hung up in the teacher's lounge for the rest of the year. So I'm like, okay, all right. So I, I can risk getting in trouble, but I get this like glory for doing something kind of sneaky and subversive. So it took me a while to kind of capitalize on that. But it was a good lesson to learn that I am funny. Adults think I'm funny. So let's just keep going
0: with it. Yeah, that reminds me of a high school time. I had a group of buddies and we called ourselves tri Kappa Stooge. It was sort of our fake fraternity. But there were three of us and we would do something we called gag of the week, which again, why we were tolerated, I don't know, but we would do something to get the school talking. And I can't remember what it was we did it at a school assembly or something where we then got called to the principal's office. There was this guy named Dr. Klima, and he had a big glass office. You could see from the hallways into his office, but it was too thick of glass to be able to hear him. And he marched us in there and sat on, this, on the couch, and he was talking to us and flailing his arms as if he were correcting us, And but he was talking in this very even tone, like, look, I thought what you guys did was funny, but if I'm not seen correcting you, this is gonna cause other trouble. And we were like, <laughs> just beside ourselves. He goes, do not laugh. If you laugh right now, we're gonna have to, you know. So we were like, oh my God, he's actually approving of us as he's appearing to be punishing us.
1: That's yeah. great, that should be a movie Oh my series. God,
0: it's a great scene. Cause he said, now look, I'm gonna walk out of here. Do not laugh, keep a sour face. And then you can go back to your classes in five minutes. And we just thought, wow, we really we really got in under the radar on that one. That's great.
1: And how great for you that you had a, a friendship group like that, too. That was just, you know, you knew your whole thing was being funny together.
0: Yes. It's very much like competitive tennis or golf, which is you always want to make the other person laugh. And it's very important that you think about, oh, what am I gonna do at the lunch hour? What am I gonna do after school? And what story are they gonna tell if I do this thing at the football game, right? That's that's what we lived for. I didn't wanna to pay to go to the football games. So I, <laughs> I went to the store and bought a sax clip on a lanyard, and I would run in with the band at the back of the band without an instrument. <laughs>
1: Also, a good movie scene. I don't know. I you think can you listen. Can well, you, you, start collaborating on this. Yes. Script.
0: Well, that's all right. I I would love to see a movie by you. Have you ever written in that form a screenplay?
1: That I, I majored in film in college, and that's what I wanted to do. But I was uh, at University of Oregon with all of my film professors were had just stopped off from following the Grateful Dead around the country, <laughs> so it wasn't like the best uh, insight into modern day. Um, the film business. So, you know, I know how to analyze a film. I can figure out how to write something. Um, and then I worked for Warner Brothers as an assistant to one of the big executives for about three years. So I've read a lot of scripts. I've taken a try at it once or twice, but it's never really gone anywhere. I'd still love to. I'd love to see uh, Ginger Mancino be optioned because I think that really lends itself well to TV. Oh,
0: yeah. To me, when I was reading it, I could see those scenes and I could also... Imagine, first of all, it's very funny. It's great that you're using your lifetime of uh, observations as an adult to go through this kid voice who's going through this kind of tumultuous time in their life, but I can totally see that being a movie and, and was wondering, is there a translation here? But it it, it seems even better to be a series or a, a web series or something where you get to see the chapters in her in her world.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think so, too. And I I intentionally wrote it to be enjoyable by adults and kids when they're reading it because I read enough terrible things with my sons when they were younger that, ugh, terrible. So there are jokes in there and there are references in there that are specifically for the grown-ups reading it. So, yeah, so we'll see. Fingers crossed. Something
0: will happen. That's how I felt about children's music is that so much really kid music was so cloying that if I was on Mm a— road trip i was thinking more about driving us all off in embankment into a wall <laughs> than i was about the destination but then uh, the bare naked ladies and so many other people started coming out with great stuff mm-hmm. with kids that was you could hear repeated there was a group called trout fishing in america that i listened to oh, yeah, love yeah. those guys then it was like that i was packing my cd player with music for kids that was really for me and i could drive a much longer distance and we all kind of connected on that level and I think in a way it brought the kids' sense of humor up, too, uh, because they feel like if you're working clean, you know, I'm, I'm not a prude about my material, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of more of mm-hmm. a broadcast mentality instead of a narrow cast mentality. So I don't want to just speak to some little niche audience that only knows about riding unicycles. That mm-hmm, doesn't interest mm-hmm. me. But an idea that a family can sit down in front of a show, that's kind of what I liked was the family watching something or going to a movie. We'd go to a drive-in and my dad would be laughing in the front seat and we'd be laughing in the back. I kind of felt like this is much more accessible. So you do learn what do you do with your voice. And some of it as a stand-up, the pride of having comedy that can go out into the world and do good instead of do bad, it's like raising kids, right? So I don't want my joke to, to skewer somebody that night and then somebody else repeated and it hurts somebody's feelings. It's very strange these days. You you refer to always remember to uh, punch up or don't punch down. And we're in a stage where everybody just wants to punch each other.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a lot of lateral punching right now. But yeah, that's one thing when I do talk to kids about humor, I say punch up and not down. So never make fun of somebody because of who they are, what they look like, who they love, anything like that. But you can make fun of the king, you can make fun of the president, blah, blah, blah. And then I had a kid get up and tell a Biden joke. So I'm like, well, that kind of backfired on me, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, give him points for getting the lesson. Yeah.
0: And here's what's interesting. I find as a stand-up, especially if I'm hosting something or I'm in a forum, I can make fun of fashion, but I don't make fun of Mm -hmm. the person that's wearing it. But also I don't make fun of it when it's on them. So if I make fun of shoulder pads, I'm not looking at a woman with shoulder pads. You know, I find that that's kind of, you're also judging them at that moment. So it's just kind of an artful way, I guess, a dance that you do where you're you're commenting on society or you're commenting on art, you're not commenting on the artist. A hundred
1: percent. And I wrote, embarrassed to say this, but I wrote Us Weekly Fashion Police for a long time. And their big thing was make fun of the clothes and not the person. And, you know, I'm like, I just can't say anything more about Justin Bieber's pants. I just, I I don't know what to say anymore. I'm done. So then you just take like a stupid approach and make a a joke with his song lyric or a name of a song in there. And it's pulling punches. But yeah, also I'm like. I'm not going to, or there are certain celebrities. I'm like, I'm not even getting close to making a joke about this person because that's just going to backfire and make me look like the asshole, so no.
0: I always find it's easier to shoot arrows at yourself (laughs) than at others. And I always find it's a mirror to them anyway. The current piece that I'm doing called uh, Pat Hazel's Permanent Record is about everything I did wrong that should have kept me from succeeding. And it was farcical in nature at first. And then I thought to make it relevant and to have people be afraid of what maybe they've done in the past, I actually hired here in Austin, a political opposition research company to look into me. And these, it was really a really interesting exercise and a little bit terrifying because I was saying to them, find out whatever you can find, and then I'll have to defend it. And We'll see, and they were delighted. They were digging deeper. They said, "You know, we've never had anybody hire us against themselves. You always hire against the opponent." But they found stuff that was nothing, what I would call, you know, horrifying. But they knew that I was debuting this show in Des Moines, and they found some statement I made 35 years ago in an Orange County newspaper about you do your A list material here in California. You go to places like Des Moines to try out new material, right? So oh my it was not even that big of an insult. But the way they presented it right. was, you are going to have to apologize to the city of Des Moines upon <laughs> your arrival. They suggested I hired a communication strategist to form the apology or find a surrogate to speak on my behalf to say that I wasn't anti-Iowan And by taking each of the steps that they said, it even made it funnier because it was sort of like a a big deal to have a guy say to me, well, you got this choice or this choice, but if you (laughs) can't apologize to them directly, you got to get a celebrity or somebody of note that they trust to make your apology for you. So in that, all of that scramble, I had a friend that was helping George Hamilton out with some things and George Hamilton was willing to go on the record on my behalf to the city of Des Moines, and he did this hilarious little thing, and then afterwards he said, did I pronounce the guy's name right? Like, he didn't, he, he looked that's like he was funny. a paid endorser, and it was very funny, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's great, that was brilliant to do that, and then you got all this material that you never could have seen coming.
0: Yeah, except that it's uh, material about yeah. yourself, and you go, Oh, do I really wanna put this picture up? It was already a mistake on well, Facebook. Yeah. Do I need to repeat that? and? Um, But Mm -hmm. in a way, what I guess returns to the point I was trying to make is that then it becomes not a show about me. It becomes a show about a man who made some mistakes and got knocked off Mm -hmm. his pedestal to his kids, to other people. And we've all had that. We've all had bad moments in parenting that we would not like others to know about. You know, I've had kids jump out of the Target shopping cart onto their head. And you're a bad parent at that (laughs) moment when you go into the emergency Mm -hmm. room. And then they're asking your kid, now, what else has your dad done to you? And you're like, no, 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 I jumped. Mm -hmm. I dove for the the cereal prize. Speaking of that, the parenting and humor crossover. I am curious, Mm -hmm. as a mom, when your kids get old enough, you were probably a fun, funny, subversive mom with going to school and all that. At the tipping point, when they become a little embarrassed by you, you don't stop saying or doing what you do. At what point did you feel that, That freeze come?
1: The the freeze came when they, and I don't know this for sure, but friends of theirs saw something I wrote about them online, like tweeted, or I used to write parenting articles, and they got really unhappy about that. Even though I wasn't saying anything terrible, but I made the conscious choice then to stop sharing anything about them without their permission and they never gave me their permission. so I just stopped that completely and you know I blocked all of my older son's friends on Twitter who were following me because I didn't you know they were teasing him about it uh, and all of that. but I think I, I wasn't that much of a funny mom because I was a little bit stressed out all the time. <laughs> but the biggest humor gift I gave them was the sensibility of what shows and movies and books, that I gave and shared with them, so they both have really good senses of humor. Uh, notably, my older son—he's really, really funny. But they kind of have that. I mean, your kids probably do this too, just like the goofy uh, "That's my dad, that's my mom" smile. You know, so they're not like laughing loudly, but you know, they appreciate it, and I can tell that they—they they know it's funny.
0: My younger son—we we used to go to a leadership camp in the summer in Nebraska. And he was in his group, and I I was a staff member with other groups, but I could hear from the other staff members. And so the guy that was leading his group came to lunch afterwards and said, well, your son said that you do dad jokes professionally, which was like a tremendously (laughs) insulting comment. (laughs) But it's one of those funny things. like we have to put up with this all the time. Yeah, He's testing jokes on us. And they're also, by the way, Mike, both my sons are very witty and kind of catch me off guard sometimes with the way they structure something funny to tell me. Uh, And we will riff sometimes. Like if we hit something over a dinner hour about anything, it will suddenly go back and forth and we'll just try to top each other on that topic. And that's a really, really fun thing. But that's that's now that they're in their 20s. When they were in their teens, there was a... Champion eye rolling going on, and also mm-hmm. much of the mm-hmm. don't use that in your act, it's not funny. I could tell you now and save you the time,
1: uh-huh. or nobody thinks that's funny anymore, nobody says that word anymore, Ooh, yeah. or that was like, yeah, that sort of thing, too. But I wanted to say, going back to your point earlier about mistakes made in the past, I never considered that I was a person that wrote offensive jokes or tried to punch down or be mean, but society has changed at light speed over the last even five years. So when my editor went through my Ginger Mancino manuscript and, you know, did a sensitivity read and highlighted all the stuff that I shouldn't have said, I felt like Archie Bunker. I'm like, I didn't, you know, like I had a line in there calling school lunch lady He-Man. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. Like I never should have said that, you know, just think our generation is trying to keep up with it. We all wanna say the right thing. We all wanna use the right words and phrases. But it's been such a rapid change. So all I can do is just hope that I'm not saying anything. And I, I make it sound, again, like a marchy Bunker. I'm not at all, but it's I, I tread lightly sometimes.
0: I'm with you. You know, here's what's funny. I learned that Pluto was not a planet for my kids, and then it became a dwarf planet, and then it became a planet again. Like, I can't keep track of it. And when I was a kid, Bruce Jenner was a man. Now he's a woman. Now, mm-hmm. you know, so you kind of go, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. so I'm— I'm trying to stick with it. I am learning at the pace I can. And sometimes I did get corrected about a, a gender-neutral bathroom comment I made. And I did not mm-hmm. think it was inappropriate. I said, I don't know what the fuss is to the audience. You all have gender-neutral bathrooms in your home. Your grandma goes in there, you go oh, in yeah. there. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. It, I think it wasn't the the comment it was more that I was heading into a topic with sensitivity, yeah. Because that, to me, is one of the fights that I, nobody has to work. Like we should all be sitting on a toilet alone. That that's yeah. <laughs> that's, I guess, my my stance on that. You have Twitter as an outlet, so if something yeah. funny comes to you, you can put it right up. Your platform allows you to have a voice immediately. I have not really mm-hmm. gotten into that particular thing. I do post on Facebook on occasion, but I do have an expression in standup. So I'll be doing standup tonight and tomorrow night. So if I have a dumb idea, I don't hesitate to try it. I sometimes have to frame it in something. I have to figure out a way to get them to think about it. And then I can talk on the topic. But once you build a a little bit of confidence in standup, you can kind of drive the bus anywhere you want.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because the stakes are higher for you because on twitter sometimes i'll have an idea and i'll tweet about it and just see if it gets any traction and i'm like okay this is this hit a nerve or it has people responding to it so maybe i'll write something longer on this topic but if it's something that lands with a thud i can just delete it i don't have to sit there and try to regain the audience oh that's
0: affection. yeah that's interesting i also found that over the pandemic my posts on facebook changed They began, I was doing what I was always doing, funny little comment as if it was a one Mm -hmm. panel cartoon. Like, oh, let's see how I can get some people to laugh. And then it got to be where I was talking to friends on the phone. People seemed to need a little bit more inspiration or a little bit more hope. Mm -hmm. And so I began to write less funny and more inspiration Mm -hmm. type material because I needed it too. It wasn't just for them. I just needed to remind myself, Mm -hmm. oh, there's a purpose for us to be on the planet. Oh, humanity has... Is clearer now because we have a global pandemic. So the people across the world are having the same issue. Oh, I see. It's not just my neighborhood. It's not just the picture of my salad. It's not my selfie anymore. It's all of us are in one place. So it was re- it was quite a um, eye opener that people were responding more to that and saying, "Oh, you should write a more of an inspirational book," or "I'd like to know your opinion on this idea," and that. I guess it leads me to a question I have: Where you're empowering younger voices through teaching comedy writing camps mm-hmm. for kids? Mm-hmm. So, what what is the age group that you're teaching to, and then tell me how they're responding to this?
1: I've taught a few different ones, probably ages eight to fourteen in general. I I'd like to keep it in you know the younger and the older because there's a huge difference in skill set and sensibility and appropriateness. But I like to think that not all kids are born to be performers, like I'm not born to be a performer. And there's the quiet kid who's probably the funniest person at the school, but doesn't have a way to express it. So that's why I like to offer the humor writing classes. And, you know, we go through things like write the rule of threes. This is what a setup punchline is, you know, very basic stuff. And you can just see the light go on in some of these kids' eyes and... Interestingly, I spoke at a middle school in East Austin and I let the kids get up afterwards and tell jokes. And they were really, really dark jokes Mm -hmm. about police brutality, about 9-11 and blah, blah, blah. And to my credit, I didn't overreact. I didn't scold. I just said, I understand why you told that joke, but you need to know that a lot of people won't relate to it or won't uh, appreciate a 9-11 joke. You weren't born when that happened but just know. So we kind of talked it through. Like I wanted them to be intelligent about the jokes they tell and just know that it's not without a repercussion, that their voices matter. And I think when they know that their voice can cause a reaction, it makes them think more carefully about what they're saying.
0: Oh, I think that's excellent. And the fact that you can dialogue about it is something that that will stay with them because I feel like this is why coaches, sometimes a karate teacher, sometimes impart the greater lesson on us. Somebody who has enough interest in telling you a thing that is not academic, particularly that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. I feel like the teachers that told me, hey, you can come down here after school and paint this backdrop. I believe that you can do this. It was that their belief in me that made me want to go into theater, that wanted me to produce. These didn't come from English and science and math. They came from somebody saying, right. if you don't like this play, we had a drama teacher, then why don't you guys rewrite it? And I was like, what? What do you guys like? Well, we watch MASH on television. He goes, let me see if there's a script for MASH. And he got the, there was a play version of it at one point. And then we infused, we didn't really write rewrite it, but we took from the television show, like announcements and things, and we put that stuff in. But boy, did we feel like being creators was something that we were destined to do because we got to, you know, refinagle the words and cast the characters off of each other and those kinds of things made all the difference in the world of me becoming the kind of theatrical producer that I am.
1: That's amazing and not everybody gets a chance to rewrite Larry Gellman. No,
0: he's he's one of the funniest guys (laughs) there is. And I did have an encounter with Larry and a few others when a mentor of mine passed away a guy named Everett Greenbaum, they asked me to come over to the Writers Guild and you know, I was like the youngest guy on the dais with people and it included people like Larry Galbert and others and I just looked at this panel of guys and they had written every funny thing I had ever watched and they kind of roasted him because they were buddies and and nobody took it that seriously and I got up there and I just started bawling, you know what I mean? It was like, because wow. it was so... Uh, Everett had been so uh, empowering to me. He actually gave me this advice about writing. He said, they're going to use everything you ever write. They won't necessarily use it now, but you need to stockpile. You need to make an arsenal of material because you, if you're always writing, you will always be ready when they say, what else do you have? Or when they publish your book, they're going to say, we need the next book now. It was this notion that your voice and creating this. And he said, if you're not writing a movie, then you know write a book. If you're not writing a book, then write a list. He was really serious about it. And in the end, it's it's true. And you emulate that in some ways because in 2022, your book, I Wear Tunics Now and Ginger Mancino come out at the same time. And mm-hmm. you're gaining an audience and you have to be ready for what's next, which I'm sure you are. But- you're then writing on a treadmill to stay ahead.
1: Early on when I had the always maxi pad letter go viral, I got approached by a lot of editors and agents and, you know, I I didn't have anything else. I'm like, this, this is the first thing I wrote that hit big. So I don't, I didn't, I wasn't prepared. And you don't know that at the time that I, you know, I didn't have a voice of what I wanted to say anyway. So it was quite a long time later before I actually was ready for a book but now I feel much more prepared I have more of a body of work plus I'm better at it if somebody said you know tomorrow write something about this I could at least take a try at it I don't know how good it would be but I'm more confident in knowing that I can say yes and not have a failure
0: are you working on something right now that is soon to be published or that's a dream thing that you can share any info on
1: I'm doing uh, short humor pieces and I collaborate a lot with people because I started doing that more during the pandemic because to me, it's a game. It's, I'm sending you the Google doc and you catch it and then you throw it back to me. So it's a little less pressure and it's just more fun. So I've been doing that. I have a couple of short pieces in the works. And then I've been thinking about doing another book about a funny book about being an empty nester because I think there's a big need for it in an audience. But I haven't found anything funny about being an empty nester yet. So give me like maybe a few more months of having the kids gone and I'll find something. But
0: oh, yeah, it's uh, a brilliant okay. topic. And believe me, there's nothing empty nesters like more than reading a book in a yeah. lounge chair. Because it's quiet and nobody's mm-hmm. around anymore. But I also mm-hmm. think they do have kind of moments of grief about I'm not cooking for seven anymore. I'm cooking for one or two. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bright area for you to carve out. Just as with tunics, I will say, you are now the general of the tunic army. Like oh, great. You own tunics. There's nobody out there that's doing for tunics.
1: No, nobody else is claiming it. Mm-mm. Nobody, nobody else is cornering that tunic market besides me.
0: Yes, I'm working on the jeggings and skorts market.
1: Good, I, th-
0: I think you're going to have a clear runway there. Right, good. Well, if people want to know more about your book, I Wear Tunics Now, or more about you, they can go to wendyarons.com. Wendy ins in an I, and Aarons has two A's, R-O-N-S.com. You're going to find that. And then you may want to just go follow her on Twitter and find out what's going on in her brain any moment that she has something witty to say. It is a fun way for people to kind of immediately get a taste of your sense of humor and the referrals that you make to other things are really smart, literate, and cool. Thank you, Wendy, for coming in today.
1: Thank you. This has been really
0: fun. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at pathazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's .fun because .com is just too .common and .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now.
1: Staring
0: at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage in circus of uncertainty. You're called to create to me. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La la, 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 la. la, la